want to know? Yeah, so I'd love to hear about the how the Zimbabwe Communist Party was started, uh, how it, you know, represents a growing left in Zim in Zimbabwe post independence, and how it interprets the different problems of of politics in Zimbabwe, from land reform to uh, continued neo-colonialism. So really, just for you to talk about your theoretical program uh, and what the ZCP stands for. Okay, let me start from my own personal background. Uh, my name is Ian Beddows. I'm born in Britain. Uh, I'm a builder by trade. I'm a bricklayer by trade, although later on I went into construction management. Um, I joined the Communist Party in Britain in 1972 after the 13-week building workers strike. I was in London and I was, well, a bit uh, stronger than I am now, and, but I'm still quite tall. And I used to steward meetings. I got close to both ZAPU, the original liberation movement, and to the ANC. Anyway, the long and short of it is that um, I was recruited by the ANC, the armed ring, in Kontoe Sizwe. In 1985, and uh, I went for military training in Angola. In fact, like a lot of other white guys, uh, I was used for intelligence because we could go places where the black comrades couldn't go. Mm -hmm. So we got a, a group of over 70 people called London recruits, most yeah. of whom came from the British Communist Party at, at that time. Anyway, I, I landed in Zimbabwe where I already had contacts with the former ZAPU members. I met my wife there and I stayed in Zimbabwe. That's how I became Zimbabwean. Uh -huh. I'm now living in South Africa because of the problems of economic uh, breakdown in, in Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm the South African government have given me a free house as a military veteran, uh, and that's where I, I am now. But you must remember that there's, we, there's an estimated 5.7 million Zimbabweans in South Africa, right. uh, there's about uh, 14 million in, in Zimbabwe. Right. Uh, so, and the people in South Africa are, to a very large extent, the skilled working class uh, management and everybody who is any good in industry because basically Zimbabwe was deindustrialized. Right. So anyway, let us go back to uh, from there, a bit of personal background to um, the formation of the Zimbabwe Communist Party and what its origins are. Now, the first Communist Party on Zimbabwean Territory was the Communist Party of Southern Rhodesia, which lasts from 1944 to 1949. It was led by Gottfried Lessing, by the way, the husband of a tired novelist, Doris Lessing, progressive novelist. Um, it was mostly white, never really got off the ground. And when, because uh, Lessing was a, uh, Lessing was a refugee from Nazi Germany, a communist and uh, 
1949, he went back to the German Democratic Republic, uh, became a diplomat, and uh, the Communist Party fell apart as soon as he left. Mm -hmm. Now, what's more important is, is this, uh, that Southern Rhodesia was, as it was then, was one of those territories where a lot of whites settled. In 1924, uh, whites were given their own parliament, but they never were given full dominion status because the proportion of white settlers to the black population was in fact very small, much smaller, for instance, than in South Africa. Uh, and the interesting thing is that they built infrastructure there, which Stalin talks about in, in any way that uh, what the imperialists do, they've got massive exploitation, mm -hmm. but when they go to, to other countries, they build infrastructure and they create a working class and native intelligentsia. And that's exactly what, what's happened in, in southern Rhodesia. Uh, and the whites were treating it as a permanent home. Mm -hmm. Now, to understand African politics properly, you have to go back to the liberation from direct colonial rule started just after the Second World War. Um, in 1945, we had the Fifth Pan-African Congress, which was held in Manchester in England with the uh, the, the the father figure there was W.E.B. Du Bois, and I think perhaps the, the major figure from Africa itself was Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, and that set the ball rolling for African independence. Now, the first great armed struggle against colonialism was in Algeria, which started in the 1950s. And... and also, at the same time, just start a little later, was the Land and Freedom Army uprising in Kenya. They were known as the Mau Mau. They killed maybe 30-odd white settlers, and there was a savage repression um, coming from the British Army. They, they massacred thousands of Kenyans. They tortured thousands more. Now, the Algerian war was very expensive for France, both economically and politically, and also the Mau Mau uh, and the suppression of the Mau Mau was also expensive for Britain, both in terms of, of military costs and of their reputation. So those two major colonial powers in Africa opted for the neo-colonial agenda. In other words, you can have your black uh, president and your national anthem and national flag, but the economy remains under our control. That's neo-colonialism, and that is what we saw going right through Africa. Now, when they came down to the south, there was a problem. First of all, you had large Portuguese-owned territories on either side, Angola and Mozambique. So the Portuguese were not interested in, in even giving nominal independence to their territories, which resulted in major colonial wars. And in fact, those, those wars were funded by 
mostly by the Soviet Union. Um, and we must also admire that the Portuguese Communist Party organized within the army. So in 1974, there was a military coup in Portugal, which uh, ended the colonial war. And the new government said to the liberation movements, look, we don't want to fight you anymore with withdrawing. Let's just organize uh, the withdrawal. And then Flimo took over in Mozambique, uh, um, MPLA in uh, Angola, and then uh, you also Guinea-Bissau and the smaller Portuguese uh, islands and, and stuff all became independent at, at that time through Armstrong and through the support of the Soviet Union. Now, also, you had a problem with Rhodesia. Northern Rhodesia had already become Zambia uh, and South Africa, because you had entrenched white settler governments, which no longer were in the interest of big capital, because big capital could see that um, that these white settler governments would not last sooner or later they go before. And in fact, in Rhodesia, they put sanctions against the Rhodesian government because they refused the uh, one man, one vote. Uh, so although normally it's portrayed that the uh, wars against the against colonialism in Zimbabwe and South Africa were anti-imperialist wars. In reality, they were not. They were wars against the local, very cruel white settler regimes. But the imperialists wanted black governments, but they wanted black governments they could control, like in the rest of Africa. Um, now, that's giving you some, some of the background. Um, in what was then Southern Rhodesia, we had a very well organized uh, railway system. And the first major strike of black workers was in 1945 uh, on the railways, and they won. 1948, we had a general strike because of low wages being paid by, by the Rhodesians. But it also had, the 1948 strike also had um, the, an anti-colonial and nationalist flavor as well. Now, in 1957, the trade union movement and others from the working class, those who organized the a bus boycott for the expensive bus system in Stalsby and now Harare came together and they revived the Southern Rhodesian African National Congress. It had been there on and off since 1912 because the original African National Congress didn't only cover the Union of South Africa, it covered all the territories of uh, southern of, of Southern Africa, which were under British control at the time. So it was a Southern Rhodesian African National Congress, but it was not uh, 
very militant. That has to be said. It was on and off. Now, in 1957, the workers revived the Southern Rhodesian African National Congress as a fighting nationalist organization. But I want to make it very clear. There was a problem that they didn't have a clear ideology. The ideology was to get rid of white rule, but there, there was no clarity about what you do after you throw out the white racist government. Um, and I want to come back to that later. The other thing that uh, I want to point out as well is that, like I said earlier, um, the more far-seeing members of the British ruling class could see that the settler regime wouldn't last. In 1949, there was an organization called the Capricorn Africa Society, which was formed by David Sterling. Who was David Sterling? Very interesting person on the right of British politics. He'd been the founder of the SAS, Special Air Services, which even today is the main special forces of the British Army. After the war, he also set up mercenary organizations. He set up an organization within Britain, private spy organization to spy on communists inside the trade unions. And by the way, uh, he, came very close to leading a coup in 1974 again in, in Britain against the government of, of Harold Wilson. So he's a very dangerous man. He formed the Capricorn Africa Society in 1949 to teach, to educate young Africans. How to educate them? To educate them to work for the Western British system after the Rhodesians had lost power, which was obviously they were going to do. I want to come back to them now. The Southern Rhodesian African National Congress chose the president of the Railway Workers Union to be the president of the new nationalist organization. That was Joshua Ngomo, who even today we refer to as the father of Zimbabwe. So uh, but there was one problem which occurred later. The majority, the, uh, a number of different ethnic groups in Zimbabwe, but the two sort of major ones, Ashona and Ndebele, with Ashona being the majority, and the Ndebele being the, the biggest minority group. In those days, it didn't matter. The early politics showed us uh, that the working class in southern Odisha chose as the, their leader whoever was the best leader. But uh, these ethnic politics were actually brought into play later. So, so although he belonged to the smaller group, Ngomo became the president and the leader uh, in 1957. The, the African National Congress, the South, so the Southern Rhodesian African National Congress was banned 
1959, around about March 1959, by which time, by the way, they sent the first six people for military training to Ghana. Uh, and uh, so what then, what then happened was after nine months, they formed, the same people formed the National Democratic Party. That again was banned in 1961, towards the end of December 1961. In, after nine days, they reformed themselves as Zimbabwe African People's Union. And for the first time, a major organization used the name Zimbabwe, which is now the name of, of the country. Now, during this time, uh, people have been sent for military training, not only to Ghana, to Algeria, to Egypt, uh, and already in 1962, the first arms came in the country from, from Egypt. In that, but in 1962, Ngomo had talks with the Soviets for assistance with the arms struggle, which they agreed to. Then what happens? Very important part of, of, of our history. The right wing of Zappu, uh, which was composed of uh, sort of lawyers and university professors and people like that, <coughs> broke away because they were anti-communist. And these were members of the Capricorn Africa Society formed by David Sterling. So in a way, ZANU, as a breakaway, was formed, ZANU was formed under the auspices of British intelligence. Soon, yes, they got Chinese support because China at that time, through the Sino-Soviet split, unfortunately started supporting all the Western uh, the, the Western supported liberation movements, uh, for instance, PAC in South Africa, uh, and most notoriously UNITA in, in Angola, you had SWANU in, in Namibia. They supported these breakaway groups, which were also supported by, by the West. Now, in all the other countries, the main liberation movements won. In Zimbabwe, it didn't, and what was used was ethnicity, because the lie of ZANU was we can't be led by Ndebele's, meaning Ngomo. And it took some time. It didn't happen overnight that all the Shona said, oh, no, let's support ZANU. But over time, it, it happened, and... Uh, so what, what eventually happened was that ZANU won in 1980 in an election which was run by the British Army. So even then, we don't fully trust the election results of, of 1980 because um, the, they, we, we know that some of the election results fortified and 
British and the Americans support Mugabe at, at that time, despite what happened later. And Andrew Young, the well-known uh, US diplomat, actually wrote an essay where just to paraphrase it, he said, the victory of Rob Mugabe is a victory for Western diplomacy because it stopped the, the uh, Soviet advance to Africa represented in Zimbabwe by Joshua Ngomo. Now, one of the other things that had happened prior to that was the Lancaster House talks. Uh, the armed struggle had been started by Zappu, but uh, at the Zipra, and then Zana, the armed wing of, of uh, Zanu, came in. Now, one of the complications of the politics of the region was, was this. Nyerere, although he's looked on as a great African leader, was anti-Soviet. He didn't like Nkomo, he didn't like the Soviets. Samora Machel in Mozambique, though an excellent guerrilla leader, was not really a politician, to be very honest. He made a lot of blunders. And he was persuaded by Nyerere to give military bases in Mozambique to to, to Zana instead of to Zipra, despite the fact that the Soviets had armed him. And that had a great effect because the biggest border of Zimbabwe is the eastern border, which is full of mountains and forests, which is very good guerrilla territory. So Zana had the eastern side, which is also more heavily populated, most of Ashwana speaking people. And Zipra had the north and had to cross the Zambezi River from Zambia in order to do its fighting. But the other thing Zipra had done was they kept back half the army because they expected the war to reach a conventional stage. And when it looked like the end of 1979, the end of 1980, uh, or beginning of 1980, the, the war was about to be launched. Kenneth Kaunda, the Zambian president, we know called Margaret Thatcher, who was very worried of full-scale war starting from his territory. And Zipa had tanks and airplanes given them by, by the Soviets, and they believed they could reach Salisbury, now Harare, within four days. Um, and so Thatcher immediately called talks, and unfortunately, Ngomo, who got a lot of respect for, didn't want bloodshed. He said, no, okay, let's go with it, let's talk. And from there, the, the fate was sealed. Now, the important thing here is this. Both Zapu and Zanu claimed to, claimed to be Marxist-Leninist. Um, Zappu had a much better claim, but we never had our own Communist Party. A lot of Zappu cadres were trained by Soviet instructors. We had political commissars in the army trained by Soviet instructors. But for the majority of the African leadership, not only in Zimbabwe, Marxist-Leninist education 
was something you had to endure in order to get arms and train to fight the white man. That was the, the understanding of all but a very few of our African leaders. Uh, and Zappu was better. Zalma was, was worse. Uh, they had some uh, very facile Maoist training. But in all my years in Zimbabwe, I only met one convinced Maoist all, all my life who was you know, really a convinced Maoist. He believed in, in all the Maoist ideology. I only met, met one, although Zipra had quite a number of people, uh, some of whom have now become members of the Zimbabwe Communist Party. Now, what then happened? Zapu and Goma accepted that they lost the election, although a lot of people wanted to say, no, let's continue fighting. But they, they said, no, let's go into government. And they became part of the government. Then in 1982, two things that were sort of spurious. There was a few dissidents, maybe about 400 of them in Matabeleland, ex Zipa, who didn't want to be come out of the bush. And also there's some in the eastern part from, from, from Zadna. Um, then the pressure was on from the British that, and from the South Africans that they didn't want uh, they didn't want Zimbabwe to be used as a rear base by Mkontowe Siswe, the arming of the National African National Congress. Although uh, Mozambique had been a base for Zanna, Zambia had been a base for Zipra, and also for N for Mkontowe Siswe, Angola had been the base for Mkontowe Siswe, but Mugabe, once he was in power, said no, and they did a deal which we know about in, in 1982, Emerson Munangagwa, the president, president, was head of national security. And we know that when uh, Brigadier uh, Sir Edward Jones came into the country to, because of the British advisory force there, then they started massacres of people in Matabeleland. Uh, of Ndebele people, which which was supposed, which they tried to uh, present as a tribal thing to the outside world. And even in Mashonaland West, where Zap was very strong, there were also massacres there. And across the rest of the country, Zapu cadres were were killed. So Zapu was the nearest thing we had to a communist party before the formation of the Zimbabwe Communist Party in, uh, in 2017. Um, and it was put down with great ferocity by the Mugabe administration. Eventually, um, in 2007, uh, uh, Ngomo signed 
the unity accord with Mugabe to unite the two parties, but Zappu was sort of swallowed by, by, by what was then ZANU-PF. Um, and the, the unity was a sort of forced unit. unity, was to stop the, the killings and there was nowhere else to go. So, um, by the way, that's when I was sent in to find out what was happening from the Unity Accord from MK, because Mugabe, in a statement that he said openly on British television, Zimbabwe is not a frontline state. So we, as a contemporary we, we wanted, if, we, if possible, to use Zimbabwe uh, as, as a rear base, or at least to get some stuff through Zimbabwe in order for the armed struggle in South Africa. Um, now, and then, by, by the way, I married my wife, uh, who is ex-Zander, by the way, but joined Sapo after, that's another incident that, that occurred, that the, in 1979, Zander commander, uh, Josiah Tongugara, had been in favor of unity then, of the patriotic front going in as, as, as one party. And he was killed in a road accident, which is very, very suspicious, because after the road accident, after he died, under very suspicious circumstances, then Zanu pulled away and decided to go on its own. So my wife and some others actually left ZANU and joined ZAPU at that, at that stage. So that's a, just a little glitch in, in, in the history, because the history is complex. Um, now, after 1980, uh, what the Rhodesians had done So the interesting thing about the interesting thing that happened with the Rhodesians, this is one of the twists in Zimbabwe history, was it had rather like Britain during the Second World War, adapted features of socialist organization. Um, although obviously it wasn't a socialist, in other words, they tried to make as much as possible internally. They had state planning. They had strong state-owned enterprises. Uh, and they did that in order to survive, except that it wasn't for the majority of the people. It was aimed at keeping the white minority in power. Nevertheless, in 1980, the Rhodesian dollar was even stronger than the, than the British pound it was very strong because they had an internalized economy. Most, unlike most African countries, almost any other African countries, almost everything imported in Rhodesia was made in Rhodesia. And that carried on for the first 11 years of independence. We had a self-contained economy very by, by and large. Little was imported, most was uh, produced internally. But there was a problem that uh, ZANU didn't really have people who understood 
uh, political economy, especially the political economy of the old country. And Franz Fanon refers to this phenomenon in uh, The Wretched of the Earth in the chapter uh, The Pitfalls of National Consciousness, where he says that, you know, when the, when the African leaders took over there, they had a sort of bookish idea of what was e e economics, and they didn't really understand the political economy of their own countries. And this was true in Zimbabwe. Once they took power, they didn't know how to run the economy. And what they did, they took a man called Bernard Chizero, who'd been trained by the World Bank, the IMF, who'd worked with the UN, is a highly qualified Zimbabwean, but he was a neoliberal. And, if, and the first, and although as an accountant, he'd done rather well in the middle terms, uh, around about mid 1980, 1985 or about, he took over and he actually ran things rather well. Once he showed that he had. Uh, the powers of being able to, to run from day to day the existing system. He then pushed for a change of the system. And we know that uh, this was the time when counter-revolution was going on in Eastern Europe. And by 1991, we had the Economic Structural, Structural Adjustment Program, which we call ESAP, Economic Structural Adjustment Program, ESAP. Now, once that was introduced, we took on huge loans. There was massive import of luxury goods for the better off white and black in Zimbabwe, and the economy actually started to dive down. Real wages, real wages uh, went on a downturn. Now, what happened is that the Zimbabwe Congress of Trade Unions now opposed the Economic Structural Adjustment Program because of the slide in real wages. During the first 11 years of independence, real wages had actually increased. The living standards of the workers had increased. After SAP, this went down and wage negotiations kept uh, negotiating below the level of, of uh, inflation, which after this accumulates, after let's say five years, became a problem that people say, whoa, we've really, we're losing out here. So they decided to form a Labour Party. Again, there was no clear ideology. And, uh, and they also had no money. So there were a number of things, it's quite complex, there were a number of things happening at the same time. 70% of the Zimbabwean people live in the rural areas of which the majority are peasants. Also, we've got agricultural workers on the big farms, but the majority with our peasants, even today, 70% live in, in the rural areas. And there was a big cry for land. And the war veterans said, we fought for the land and we haven't had it. And they'll keep waiting 
the Zonu PF government had, whereas Zapu, during the Lancaster House, had said, we must have land re reform. Zonu say, no, no, it's fine. We'll put up with, with it for a few, few more years. But in 1994, Zimbabwe government put a law through parliament saying they could take land without compensation. According to the Lancaster House Constitution, the, the white farmers took that to the Supreme Court and were saying this is illegal under the Constitution. So the land question was hovering. And the white farmers were afraid of losing their land. And, and, and by the way, an average farm, what we call a commercial farm in Zimbabwe is 1,000 hectares. And a typical white farmer would own three farms of a thousand hectares. So they own vast amounts of land. The land had been allocated to them through the 1930 Land Act. There was a subsequent act, but basically the 1930 Land Act was, was, was the main one, in which half the land of what's then southern Rhodesia was given to the black majority and the other half the white major minority with most of the good land going to the white minority anyway, and the black majority being forced to the, the land which was mostly marginal. The, so the land issue was going on, the workers' issue was going on in the cities. Now came a third issue. Mugabe, from 1980, right through had been very popular with the West. But for reasons we're not quite sure, uh, he ended up being with the... Uh, he ended up supporting Laurent Kabila in Congo. And people don't recognize how important the Congo war was. Um, the Congo War from 1998 to 2003 uh, is the biggest war ever on the African continent. According to some UN figures, five and a quarter million people died during the, that war. Uh, although I've heard even people on the left dispute the figure, but considerable numbers, and we're looking at seven-digit numbers figures definitely died during that conflict and it was hardly reported who was responsible for that war was the usa because laurent kabila had challenged the mineral the companies the mining companies in congo and renegotiated all the mining contracts his main um advisor was building communist ludo martins uh, and Lauren Kabila became very popular in Congo, who renegotiated re all the mining contracts. He didn't nationalize anything, by the way, he just renegotiated the contracts, saying that money must go back into Congo. Uh, and because of that, Bill Clinton funded the Ugandans and the Rwandans to invade Congo, and you had the Congo War from 1998 to, to 2003. And I want to emphasize here 
that for us in Africa, we prefer Trump. Trump called Africa a shithouse, but left us alone. Who murdered our people were the Democrats, especially Clinton and Obama, Obama in Libya, and Clinton was responsible for the Congo War. So this thing of uh, the so-called left in the United States thinking that the uh, Democrats are better, that is not at all true for us. For us, the Democrats have been more uh, arrogant and more dangerous to the people of Africa than the uh, than the Republicans who just down on. Yeah, we'd rather be looked down on, not murdered. And uh, Clinton and Obama are responsible for the murders of millions of African people because they're warmongering. I want to make that case very clear now. Anyway, Mugabe sent troops to, uh, to Congo to help fight the, the Congo war. Uh, because uh, because Zimbabwe was part of the South African development community, and Sadak had actually agreed to help any member nations. South Africa sort of chickened out of it. So uh, Zimbabwe, Little Namibia, which got a small population, and Angola were, were left to fight the war. Uh, and it was then that sanctions really started because in 1990, 1999, the IMF and the World Bank withdrew funding from Zimbabwe because they said we couldn't afford to fight the Congo War. Yet the IMF and the World Bank during that time were funding the, the invading countries, Rwanda and Uganda. So we, we, we see the hypocrisy there. And it was from that time that Mugabe became unpopular and began to be seen as uh, an anti-imperialist martyr, uh, an anti-imperialist person, uh, which he'd never really been before. Uh, now, again, in 2000, there was a referendum. The movement for democratic change had been formed by the trade unionists and was quite progressive. But as soon, because they accepted money from, West, from the West, the white farmers joined them and it became opposed to, to land reform. In 2000, we had a referendum for a new constitution instead of the Lancaster House constitution. And because there's a clause on land saying we could, we could nationalize all the land, the MDC followed the white farmers and said, no, we're against land reform. And because there was confusion, the draft constitution, which was very good, was lost by a small, my, uh, by a small minority, it was only a few votes, I think 100,000 in the whole country, 
between the yes vote and the no vote. Uh, and the other complication was, was that um, the people who prepared the new constitution were those factions in, in the Sono PF, which included Zappel by that time, who didn't really like Mugabe. And, we, and some of us believe that Mugabe didn't actually prefer the, the no vote. And we know for sure that the current president, president Emerson Monangagwa, also uh, was in favor. Uh, it told his followers to vote no, although the majority of Zanupia voted yes. Uh, so with those Munangagwa votes and the NDC vote, there was a narrow uh, majority against the new constitution, which meant the old constitution, which gave extensive powers to Mugabe, carried on. So when it went down, the war veterans took matters in their own hands. They waited for 20 years for land reform, which hadn't come through. Nothing had happened. So the war veterans went onto the land. And your people say, oh, Mugabe gave, gave people the land. This is not true. I knew the war veterans. I worked with them during that period. This was their own decision to take the land. Mugabe had no choice but to follow what the war veterans had done, and then in the end took uh, responsibility or he, he took the credit for what was done by the war veterans themselves. And the other very unfortunate thing that happened was the two leaders of the land reform, which was Chenjirai Hunji and Bordeghezi, Chenjirai Hunji being the war veterans leader, and Bordeghezi being one of the younger people who come up through ZANU-PF. Both died within six weeks of each other in the middle of uh, 2001, just after this thing had, had started. Uh, initially, the land went to the people. After these guys died, the black elite started to take the best land for themselves. Now, definitely, ordinary people did benefit from land reform. We cannot deny that. But the best land was taken by the elite. And what we've got today, well, so, so, the two leaders of the land reform, Chedroy Hunji and Bordeghezi, died within, within six weeks of each other in the middle of 2001. And it's, again, like the death of Tongogara in 1979, it's very, very suspicious. What we say in, in Zimbabwe is that um, Inconvenient politicians die at convenient times. And this is what seems to have happened with Tongo Gara, with Hunji, and with Gezi. So we can't exactly say, yes, they were assassinated, but it's very, very suspicious the way th things happen. So the white farmers 
would at least live on the land and they live in the in the big house while the peasant while the workers lived in Verdhats usually or very poor accommodation. But what's happened now is that the if you go across Zimbabwe, the black elite has now built themselves not big houses, they built themselves huge mansions. Uh, one of them built a 50-room mansion. Um, but the the workers still live in mud huts. Their, their position hasn't changed. Uh, and this is one of the unfortunate things about the land reform. Uh, now, some of us, like myself, I was a member of ZANU-PF for some time, but we could uh, see that after 2000, things start to deteriorate. Now, sanctions were put on Zimbabwe. For sure, the sanctions were there. But the Rhodesians had fought against sanctions and all reorganized their economy against sanctions. The Cubans have reorganized their economy against sanctions, much tougher sanctions than Zimbabwe's ever under. And Iran has organized against sanctions. And I'm sure Russia is going to do that now as, uh, as well. But what made us bitter was that our leaders had during sanctions continued self-enrichment to continue to live bling lifestyles traveling all over the place uh even though sanctions were on grace mugabe was known for shopping sprees come to london shopping at harrods filling the zimbabwe embassy with all her goods that she bought so we we saw this thing that we we had what we now refer to as the parasitic bourgeoisie this is a phenomenon in in africa it's not a comprador bourgeoisie the difference between the parasitic bourgeoisie and the comprador bourgeoisie is the comprador bourgeoisie actually works for western monopoly capitalism the parasitic bourgeoisie actually says yeah we're anti-imperialist we're taking over from the white man but they don't care about the African workers. So we have identified a different class, which we call the parasitic bourgeoisie, or simply the looting class. Because unlike a genuine capitalist class, they don't set up factories and uh, underpay the workers, but produce a finished good and actually pay the, pay the workers at the end of the week or the end of the month, whatever payday is. They still, a real capitalist continues the system. These guys, when they take over factories, they close them down, they sell the machinery, or they find that they're just incapable of, of managing them. So we call them the looting class because they only know how to loot. They, they're not even genuine capitalists. And we began to recognize this thing seriously during the 2000s, when some of us were saying, no, you must organize the economy, must go back to the kind of economy we had before ESAP, they didn't want to listen. They were too comfortable in what they were doing. 
and it got so bad that many of us left the country. So 2008, when myself, some of my family had already gone to Botswana where we got some relatives, I was left to, I was down to one meal a day. The rest of my fam family had left. Uh, I went to Botswana first, and then from there came to South Africa. This was 2008, because the economy had entirely collapsed. Because partly sanctions, yes, but also through extreme looting of, of the economy and complete uh, inefficiency, incapacity to actually build the economy around production. And what had actually made it worse was the, the neoliberal mindset. So they printed money and everybody in, in Zimbabwe became a, not only a millionaire, but a billionaire, but very poor billionaires because the money became worthless. You had this extreme uh, hyperinflation the money became worthless. Uh, just for, for example, a loaf of bread uh, in 1990 was, I think, uh, 50 cents Zimbabwe dollar, certainly not more than, than, than one Zimbabwean dollar. By 2008, it was 8 million just for a loaf of bread. So this is how extreme the hyperinflation was, and many people uh, left. I always said I wouldn't leave Zimbabwe. I came to South Africa, and then I claimed my right as a former member of Mkontoe Siswe, and many other Zimbabweans, skilled workers, came to South Africa. That in itself has created a problem, because now there's a competition for work between Zimbabwean and other foreign workers, Mozambicans and others, with the South Africans, which has led to xenophobia among South Africans and uh, this want to push Zimbabweans back into, into Zimbabwe. So we've got this peculiar thing here. Now, this is where there's... So, we revived ZAPU in 2008. We took ZAPU out of the Unity Accord, and I was part of that. Uh, and ZAPU had been the nearest thing to a communist party. So we formed the Zimbabwe Communist League within ZAPU uh, in 2011. Uh, and that was, I think, the first communist organization since the Southern Rhodesian Communist Party folded up in 1949, the first specifically communist organization. Similarly, uh, Gabuto Mabena, who is our general secretary, formed the Zimbabwe Communist Group. He was in MDC because there was a group within MDC which had said, no, we're a working class organization. Uh, and we don't like imperialism. We're going to try and change MDC from, from within. So we had one group from within ZAP, which it, and most of us have been in ZANU-PF as well, another group coming from MDC. 
And also, in the north of Zimbabwe, you had the International Socialist Organization, the Trotskyist Organization, which had for a time uh, flown the flag of, of socialism, but some of its members were not that happy with the Trotskyist view. And there was one of them, he's late now, called Gifton Tisi, who opposed Trotskyism and he formed a group called the Northern Communists because we were based in Bulawayo in the south and in the diaspora in Johannesburg. So this group was in Salisbury. So the three groups came together and said, no, we can't carry on in the old way. We must form a communist party. So we formed the Communist Party in 2017. And when we did it, we said the first thing we have to look at is how to revive the economy. Um, and we, we the, our first document was an economic document uh, uh, on re economic reform. Now, we had our first Congress in 2019. We added to that document, and now we have our current program, which is called Completing the Liberation of Zimbabwe. And what we're saying, we don't want a socialist program at present, but what we want is an economy which would like it was there before, before ESAP, an economy like the Rhodesian setup but obviously without the racism and far more democratic. So we call that a national democratic economy where industries which have been nationalized or which have been denationalized, we want them to be renationalized uh, on the big scale. And we want national planning linked to devolution of power. So not everything is centralized in Harare, but there's a national plan which goes down to every ward and every district, to every ward, every village, and they discuss the national plan, how they, they can implement it in their particular place. Then, uh, then they will send delegates to their district and form a district planning committee. Then the district will send delegates to the province so then there'll be a provincial uh, planning committee and then there'll be a national planning council at the top which will deal with the with the finalized plan we will allow for productive capitalism we want control of the banks though we want control of the commanding heights of of the economy and we will clamp down on corruption uh, and we will encourage cooperatives. That is, in a nutshell, what we want. So we want a national plan linked to the de devolution of power. That's our plan now. Now, even people very far from being communist actually say, no, this plan could work. So the Zimbabwe Communist Party is still very small, but we have influence in the trade unions. We have influence in various uh, residence associations. We're setting up various rural projects. 
and in, in South Africa, we lead the Zimbabwe community in South Africa. So although we're very small, we're on the we're on the ground. We're not at present looking to challenge in elections. What we're doing is we're starting as the original liberation movement did with the organizations of the people. And we produce quite a lot of, of literature. Uh, we were helped by the South African Communist Party and at present we're linking with other communist parties, groups, left organizations across the African continent. So although we're still still very small, we're punching well above our weight and we have uh, quite a lot of influence and people listen to us. So I think uh, I've given a brief history. I'm sorry it's been complex uh, of uh, what is Zimbabwe and what is the history of our Communist Party? Thank you. Well, thank you so much. And, and thank you for really uh, an incredibly comprehensive history of, of Zimbabwe and the forming of the Zimbabwe Communist Party. I'm interested in, in you're talking about making further connections and continuing to expand the party. So you mentioned not necessarily pursuing uh, an electoral path. But I'm, I'm curious about sort of actions you're, you're willing to take within Zimbabwe and in the form of strikes, protests. I mean, what has the, the group, I guess, been willing to do? Uh, right. Uh, um, some of uh, uh, the, there's one particular trade union, Artus, the Amalgamated Rural Teachers Union of Zimbabwe, which is very militant, led by our members. It's the most militant trade union in Zimbabwe and the only one affiliated to the World Federation of Trade Unions. The, uh, the president, who is a senior member, has, I think, been arrested four times, beaten up three times. Uh, one where he was beaten nearly to death. So. We are on the forefront of, of the struggle. Uh, in Bulawayo, the second city, we're influential in the uh, Bulawayo Progressive Residence Association, but we, we can't avoid struggle. But what we're trying to do at the moment is show people what they can do. For instance, the, the economy is, is is really collapsed almost totally. But people in South Africa, Zimbabweans, have gathered together and they've got their rural areas, they've built their own houses where which they put boreholes for water, solar panels for electricity, and they're setting up small-scale industry in, in their home place. They've built schools, they've built clinics, Outside of government, we're encouraging people to do that. In the eastern side, in Manikaland, uh, some of our people are working with the Manika Youth Assembly, which is planting trees and involved in, in ecological uh, things. So we're avoiding confrontation where, where, where we can, because we're trying to build up the idea that we, we can build our economy from the ground. Obviously, 
this small scale stuff, we can't build a whole economy on that. But it gives people confidence when they build the economy in their local areas. And we're part of that uh, system. And like I said, 70% live in the rural areas. And in Zimbabwe, as well as people leaving the country altogether, we actually have urban rural drift. We've had people move from the cities to the rural areas, <laughs> different from what normally happens in the world. And uh, in some rural areas, people are actually better off than people in, in the cities. Uh, so this is what we're encouraging people to do. We want people to be self-contained and feel that they don't need government as, as such. If government turns against them, they will organize because they've got something to organize for. Um, but in the trade unions, yes, we, we, we're working with trade unionists uh, in the Zimbabwe Congress of Trade Unions as well. Although the Zimbabwe Congress of Trade Unions is affiliated to ITOC, but uh, like, like I say, We've, we've, we're trying to get others to join the World Federation of Trade Unions. But you must remember that most of the Zimbabwean labor force is outside the country. The, the industrial labor force has left for, for other countries. That uh, unemployment in the, in the private sector is like 90% factories have closed down. So the possibility for normal trade union activity, activity is limited. And it's not surprising that the most militant trade union is a teacher's union, because the industrial trade unions, just industry isn't there anymore. So these are some of the contradictions that we have to deal with in, in Zimbabwe. Yeah, definitely. A, a, uh, yeah. I, I, and we also say we've got a dual struggle because the MDC doesn't like ZANU-PF and they don't like the people who are running it and neither do we. And ZANU-PF is very uh, violent. It beats up people. It's done it again recently. We don't like Chamisa, who is the leader of now what's called the CCC, Triple C, but, but we're against ZANU-PF thugs beating up people, and we've, we've said that. Because Chamisa, at the time of the last election, he went to Israel to get support. So he was saying, no, we can't be led by Zionist. He went to the USA to get support from, from Donald Trump. No, we, we, we can't support such people. So we have a situation amongst a large section, even of the working class and the poor, at least the urban people, of thinking that because ZANU-PF is opposed to the imperialists and to the USA, that imperialism is good. This is the problem that we've got, which we're trying to fight through. Uh, and on the other hand, we've got people uh, 
more so in the rural areas who like Zarnov BF because of, of land reform, but they're still suffering. Um, so we've got these two parties who are really very useless. And, and what we say, we've got a dual struggle. We've got a struggle against imperialism, but we've also got the struggle against the looting class. Um, and unlike in other countries where the comprador capitalists are working directly for the imperialists and for foreign monopoly capital, our looting class has fallen out with the imperialists, but they're not good. And we can't tell, tell people you must support Zana PF because they're anti-imperialist when they can see the uh, extravagant uh, living, uh, the, the extravagant standard of living being lived by the black elite. Uh, you know, it doesn't work. Another thing that's happened under Munigawa is he's brought white farmers back. Now, we were not against that. We were not against, we were, uh, those of us who were conceived inside Zonda Pierre said, don't get rid of the white farmers, just reduce the amount of land they have. Now, white farmers are coming back. And also, uh, the Chinese are taking land for, and so on. And for various projects, people are losing their land again under Zonal PF. So even in rural areas, uh, people are being driven off the land again. Although Zonal PF, uh, you know, 20 years ago, seemed to be the ones who were in support of land. So we're trying to support rural struggles against the seizure of land as well. But like I say, we're very small, <coughs> but uh, we, we're just doing our best and to build understanding of what the struggle is about. So we're very strong on political education, but our political education is mainly based on our program. We don't, we refer to the classics, but we don't dwell on the classics. We look at the classics in terms of how they relate to the current situation in Zimbabwe, if you read our, our program, we refer to Lenin, we refer to Stalin, we refer to Nkrumah, we refer to, to uh, uh, Fanon. But we put those things into context because for us, we even prefer the term scientific socialism to Marxism-Leninism, although we're very clearly Marxist-Leninists because what we are interested in is, and we, I believe we've done it, is to produce a program which Zimbabweans could read, can understand in the context of what is possible. And I believe our program is possible, but whoa, we have a huge way to go in political education because now most of our people are very confused because what was originally the Workers' Party the MDC became pro-imperialist, and the Party of Liberation became anti-worker. So we have a very, very serious problem in trying to iron this out and say, no, this is how it really works. This is what we need to do next. Well, I was, I was actually going to ask how you uh, relate political education and how 
you teach uh, you know, scientific socialism uh, and relate it to people's lives in Zimbabwe. So if you don't mind talking more about that. Well, um, what we use mostly, like I say, is our program. And this goes back to Stalin. Stalin uh, in the 30s, he, he says, look, ev not everybody has to be uh, a great Marxist-Leninist, but what they must understand is the party program. So we teach through the party program, through our own history, but we make references to Lenin. We do at an early stage go through the Communist Manifesto of Marx and Engels, the Manifesto of the Communist Party of 1848. We use that and we use uh, uh, Nkrumah, uh, African Socialism Revisited. We use Fanon, the pitfalls of, of, national, of national consciousness. So we use these, these various things. Uh, we use parts of Lenin, a simplified form of what is to be done. And so we, we use that and we teach people why we need a vanguard party in terms of their own understanding. Now, for instance, one of the things that's peculiar to our own party, uh, my post is national political commissar. Now, in other communist parties, they don't have that position, but this that position comes from the national liberation movements where there was a political commissar uh, in both Zipa and Zanla, although in Zanla it became more of a guy who just sings songs and, you know, rally the, the people. But in Zipa, it was more important. So they understand that the political commissar is in charge of political education and is the guardian of the line of the party, whereas the general secretary is the main organizer and the, the main leader. So that is fully understood in our context. Um, and because of we're spread out, we use WhatsApp all the time. We have a WhatsApp group for each and every province of Zimbabwe. Um, as well as WhatsApp group for the trade unions, a WhatsApp group for the Central Committee for, uh, and we have a specific WhatsApp group for candidate members, because you cannot just, anybody can join the Zimbabwe Communist Party by paying a subscription fee, but you only become a candidate member. You don't become a full member and you don't have voting rights or anything like that. Before you can become a full member, you must go through an induction course and even do uh, a, and even sit a sort of small exam to know that you, you've got the basics, that you understand our program, you understand what is a communist party, what is a vanguard party. That's how we work. Uh, so a lot of it we do, especially it's become more so under COVID, we work with WhatsApp a lot. Uh, uh, 
but we're also trying to get stuff printed out so we can reach people who don't have access to internet or to cell phones. So we're, we're trying to, in some places like in Midlands, uh, Midlands province, that they, we've got some with, with, with a printer and he manages to print stuff out, which then goes to, to, to the membership. So, so we work like that. But all our members are expected to be active. Uh, you know, we don't want dead members. You, you must be active. If not directly in the party, you must be active in your trade union. You must be all your uh, residence association or whatever it may be. You must be active in the community in one way or another if you don't be a member of our party. Well, that, that's very interesting. And I, I guess my last question, um, just, to, just to conclude, would just be your your optimism or your hope uh, of the success of the Zimbabwe Communist Party, as well as communism across the African continent, as you mentioned, this organization at the micro level, but then doing it all across Africa and talking to many different communist parties. So how much optimism do you have? Well, uh, um, well, it's, it's the only way forward. Uh, I don't know how far we're going to get, but we have to keep hammering because there is no other way. Um, for And sooner or later, some of our young people are going to wake up and understand it. There is no other way in, in Africa. The whole of Africa is uh, a big mine for everybody else. Uh, the Even South Africa, industry is on the decline because the, um, the, the neoliberal agenda didn't want uh, any African country to produce. They want Africa must be a provider of primary products, not, not, of, not of industry. They only want mining products and, and agricultural products from Africa. And we have to reverse that. And to do that, we have to understand the uh, scientific socialism in the context of Africa. And we must revive Pan-Africanism. We mean genuine Pan-Africanism from Cape to Cairo, which includes everybody who is in Africa, whether they're an Arab or a Berber in the North or who, whoever they are. It's, it's inclusive. Uh, it's not based on this uh, romanticized culture. And uh, by the way, it's very interesting that Nkrumah was very much against this rom romanticization, but yet they want to romanticize Nkrumah. Nkrumah was very, very blunt, very, very, uh, he actually said, uh, there's no such thing as, as African socialism, there's only scientific socialism. And we, but we need scientific socialism in relation to, 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 to Africa and to African conditions. And that's uh, what we're trying to do. So slowly, slowly, it's getting across. I'm not going to see it in my lifetime, I'm 74 now, but um, the next generation is going to, uh, I think, 
carried through. And the, the other thing that we're likely to see very soon is uh, uh, the collapse of the US dollar and US hegemony. Um, what's happening in Russia now is, is very interesting because the I'm actually happy that all these Western countries are pulling out of Russia because Russia now has got no other choice other than to build its own companies or to work with the Chinese to, to, to do that. Uh, so the, ground, the, the amount of ground that these Western companies have got to operate in is actually closing in. And in Latin America, something similar is, is starting to, to, to happen. So uh, uh, although it might hit you guys in the USA badly when it comes, definitely the USA will, maybe not in my lifetime, I'm not sure because I haven't got that long, but sooner or later, uh, the US dollar will no longer be the world trading currency. It has no real strength because it's not based on production and uh, it will go down sooner or later. Uh, and it's going to produce huge waves world, worldwide. We, we, it's difficult to say exactly what, but one thing is certain, US hegemony will not survive. And the sooner that people in the USA understand that and they try to organize for another different USA, which is not the enemy of the whole world, because I don't, outside of the USA and Europe, most people hate the USA, really hate the USA. In Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, the USA is only loved in Europe and in America and in, in, in Canada. The rest of the world can't stand the USA because of human rights. Because the human rights from the USA are dropped from aeroplanes and explode on impact. This is what we saw in Libya. This is what we've seen in Congo. In Zimbabwe, we know they put Mugabe into power. We know that they backed the war in Angola. And I was in, in Angola, the place was devastated. And we know that be, behind all these wars is the, are the ruling elite of the USA. Uh, and both Republicans and Democrats, but for all those who are listening, for the rest of the world, the Republicans are bad, but the Democrats are worse. Uh, and if you look at the body count, just count uh, from the end of the Second World War, Truman, the, the Vietnam, uh, sorry, Truman, Truman, the Korean War, Johnson, the Vietnam War, uh, Clinton, the Congo War, and if you look at the body count for the uh, Democratic presidents, it's actually higher than for, for the Republicans. So he doesn't like either of them. But uh, the USA needs to wake up. Young people in the USA 
and get rid of these horrible organizations and build uh, at least a broad labor workers party people's party i don't know what but but you need that and you need a strong communist party to lead that general uh, that that general thing and it's not a, i know it's not an easy job our job is much easier because one thing we're not faced with in southern africa generally people respect communists they might might not agree with us but uh, if i walk through the streets hey communisti you know in a friendly way which i know i would wouldn't i know if i go to britain people are very suspicious and usa even worse so uh, you've got a very big job which uh, are on your side but yeah it has to be done we don't know how many generations it'll take but it must be done well, we absolutely agree um and we agree with everything you said about the us hegemony needing to fall uh internationally because that is that is one of the key goals of our time and uh and we you know coming from the us have a role to play in that as well so i i just like to say thank you so much for for taking the time um i really appreciate it and we wish you the best of luck with your struggle we're definitely going to stay in touch and continue following the developments of the of the communist party in zimbabwe so Thank you so much comrade and yeah appreciate it and uh, but by the way just just before i go i don't hate all americans there are a few americans i like uh-huh. crazy horse geronimo uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> the the rosenbergs joe hill uh-huh. yeah there's some good ones <laughs> gasol mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so so, so 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 there are a few good ones exactly okay <laughs> all right thank you so much i appreciate okay. it okay take care thanks everyone